Remember the way we got our Bibles is not the way. It was not always chaptered, versed, mapped and wrapped as it is today. Uh, Jesus didn't write the Bible, but if it wasn't for Jesus, there wouldn't wouldn't be any B-I-B-L-E, no Bible. Because the story of the Bible doesn't begin with Genesis, the story of the Bible actually begins with with Jesus, the story of Jesus. This series, The Bible for Grown-Ups, is one where we're exploring the story behind how we got the Bible. And so a quick recap. In the first week, we found out that the story of the Bible began with the resurrection of Jesus after the tomb was found empty. Jesus was seen and his cowardly followers who ran when he was arrested showed up in the streets of Jerusalem and said, he's back, he's alive from the dead. And thousands of Jewish people in the very area where Jesus was arrested and crucified in the area known as Judea, specifically the city of Jerusalem, embraced Jesus as their saviour. And the church launched, the church began. And suddenly, suddenly, something that was true, that wasn't true before. Suddenly, there was an interest in documenting the life, the words and the works of Jesus. Because if Jesus had stayed dead, because there would have been no church, no Christianity. And consequently, there would have been no Bible. And that's why we say the story of the Bible actually begins with the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas actually touched Jesus' wounds. He confirmed for us that the only thing we would want to do if someone claimed to have raised from the dead, Thomas saw Jesus crucified. Thomas may have helped bury Jesus. Jesus had died. The movement that he represented effectively had died. After all, how was he supposed to overthrow Rome's tyrannical rule of Jerusalem if he was dead? We have four documents included in the Bible that document Jesus' life. They're known as the Gospels. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And the Gospel means good news. The Apostle Paul and others evangelised Gentile cities around the Mediterranean basin, key ports and trading cities. And this is where the story picks up from last time. When Gentiles, non-Jewish people, became enamoured with a particular Jew, Jesus, they immediately became enamoured with the sacred text of the Jews, the Hebrew, or what we'll call the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, or Jewish Scripture, or what Jesus and first century people referred to as the Law and the Prophets. This Jewish Scripture was embraced as Christian Scripture. Early Gentile church leaders were enamoured with Jewish Scripture. They were not interested in the Jewish religion, they were not looking for Jewish texts to get the story of the Jews, they were captivated by Jewish texts because they were looking for Jesus. Their interest was Christological. In fact, they rejected the Jewish interpretation of their own scripture. The Jewish scripture is what they started with, is this. It's called the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, chukos meaning scrolls, literally the five scrolls. These five scrolls are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, known by Jewish people also as the Torah or law or instruction. The Pentateuch is highly revered, is a highly revered Jewish scripture. In fact, in Jesus' day, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees only believed in these first five books of the Bible, were inspired by God. Most scholars agree that Moses authored the five scrolls. I say five scrolls because the book form of writing uh, was not invented till about 200 AD. They didn't have books back then, so we have scrolls. But we'll call them books, the five books of Moses. The Jews believe that they're all written by Moses and they're all written to the Exodus generation coming out of Egypt to explain the origins and their history. Each title for the book pretty much sums up the book. Genesis means beginnings. It is the beginning of humanity. 
the first 11 chapters, and then from chapter 12 till the end, we have the beginnings of the nation, the nation Israel. 80% of the book of Genesis is devoted to the beginnings of the nation Israel. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. Then we have the book of Exodus. Exodus means exit. Each title for the book pretty much sums up the book, which is the great exit. Well, at least it's the exits of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob out of Egypt. 70 family members go down to Egypt at the end of Genesis, but they multiply over 400 years and become a few million people. But they are slaves, they're brickmakers in Pharaoh's kingdom. But God brings about a great exodus. After the Passover, key to this book, is that God enters into a covenant with the nation Israel. He gives them their laws, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, and there God establishes a covenant with his people. He says to the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And you're going to be separate from all the surrounding nations because I have a very, very, very specific plan for you. Because through you, my people, we, you, are going to bless the entire world. And he said to them, here are the rules, here are the stipulation, here are the laws, here's a covenant, basically a contract. He said to them, I'm going to give you your own land and when you get this land if you obey me I'm going to prosper you but if you disobey me for the sake of the world who's watching I'm going to have to punish you and if you take on the customs and the religious traditions of the surrounding nations if you if you embrace the polytheism of the surrounding nations I'm going to give you to the surrounding nations so that you might get a real good dose of that and then when you repent I'll bring you back to the land it was conditional in the sense that God would bless them if they obeyed, but it was unconditional in the sense that they would always be his chosen people with a specific agenda in mind. And all this was outlined at Mount Sinai when Moses came down, not just with 10 commandments, but 613 commandments. This is the Sinai covenant, where the protections afforded to the most vulnerable in age, women, servants, foreigners, children, all fared better under the Hebrew law than they did from any other law in surrounding nations. Why? The Hebrews believed man and woman were made in the image of God and that everyone was born with an inherent dignity. They didn't worship creation, they believed that they were the pinnacle of creation. Leviticus is the third book and then it's very easy to remember what's in the book by the title, Genesis, Beginnings, Exodus, Exit, Leviticus. Back in Genesis, you're going to find a guy named Jacob and he had 12 sons and they go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel and one of those sons Levi and the Levites became the priestly tribe of Israel and they're responsible for the worship life they lead worship they do the sacrifices all of the worship rituals are done by the Levites so that the book of Leviticus fits well as the book is about religious life and specifically the priest the first eight chapters are all different types of sacrifices Guilt offering, sin offering, peace offering. The last 10 chapters explain all the special days. The Passover, the Feast of Booths, Day of Atonement, which is still all celebrated in uh, Jewish culture today, and it's called Yom Kippur. Special sacrifices and special days in the book of Leviticus. In the middle of the book, there's actually a story about Aaron and the high priest and his four sons, and it's a tragic story, actually. Two of his sons died on the first day of worship because they tried to do their own form of worship instead of following God's instruction. So we've got Genesis, beginnings, Exodus, exit, Leviticus, about the laws for the Levites and the laws of worship. 
numbers, that's easy to remember, because it was a numbering of the nation of Israel. Uh, there's two numberings in the book of Numbers. One at the beginning, they take a census of the nation, which is the promised land. At the end of the book, they go and count them all again. And you might be wondering why you need to number it all again. Well, the nation rebelled one too many times and God consigned the whole Exodus generation, 20 years or older, to die in the wilderness wandering. That meant that the whole nation would wander aimlessly for 40 years until everyone 20 years or older who rebelled against God one too many times would die off. So to make sure that they all died off, at the end of Numbers, they take another census, a numbering, before they enter the Promised Land 40 years later. Two separate num numberings, one for the Exodus generation and one for what we call the second generation. Then, Deuteronomy. Deuteros means second, nomos, law. And why is a law given a second time? Because wasn't the law given back to Moses in Exodus at Mount Sinai? Yeah, it was. But that was to the Exodus generation. And remember, they all died off. So Moses, just before he dies, gives it again, the law a second time to the second generation as they prepare to enter the promised land. And so there you have it. That's the Pentateuch, the five scrolls or the five books or the Torah or the law. So Genesis beginnings, Exodus exit, Leviticus, the Levites, Numbers, the numberings, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy the second law. And the key to unlocking the Jewish text is who is Moses writing to? 80% of this, uh, these books are written to the Exodus generation, helping them understand the key question in life that we all have, which is, why am I here? Who am I? Where did I come from? And what am I to do? It helps them understand their roots, their purpose or mission, and so forth. And so really, God's covenant with Israel is core to the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. It's a very Jewish-centric portion of the Bible. And to understand it, you have to understand a promise that God made to Abraham right back in Genesis 12. And this is called the Abrahamic Covenant. And if you understand this covenant, you'll understand the Jewish Scripture and the Prophets and the Gospels and the Epistles and the Psalms and maybe all those other little books in between. And scholars feel it's that important. And I'll read from Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relative, from, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the one who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And scholars call that the Abrahamic covenant, and there are four parts to it. A great nation will come from Abraham, they will have a great land, they will have a great name, and they will be a great blessing to all the families of the earth. And so this is what God is doing through Abraham, Israel, and the Pentateuch. God is trying to give a great blessing to all the families of the earth, through one family on earth, the nation coming from Abraham. God is trying to be with humanity. He keeps moving and keeps trying to come to humanity. And so his first attempt is to pick one family, one nation, to be a vehicle for his presence to all the nations. Through Israel's obedience to the law, they will become God's representatives to the world, a nation of priests, a holy nation, to reveal God to the whole world. Actually, at the end of Exodus, God's presence actually comes down and tabernacles with the people. It's like a tenting. He kind of camps with them in a holy place. God with us. And that idea that this nation, through their behaviour, through their worship, 
they will invite all nations to come and behold the character of the one true God, Yahweh, whose name means I am, the eternal God. And so that's the Abrahamic covenant. And we also look briefly at the Sinai covenant handed down to Moses at Mount Sinai. So back to the storyline. After the Sinai covenant, wandering for 40 years, they entered the promised land. Israel, now that they were sort of like a nation state, they wanted to have a king. And so eventually Israel got herself a whole bunch of kings. And God didn't want Israel to rule his kingdom, treat him as king. God wanted them to view him as their king and rule through the judges. But they got themselves a king and most of Israel's kings were disasters because such is the nature of a king. Such is the nation of someone who holds all the cards and all the power. They raise taxes and people don't like taxes. They raised armies and armies are expensive. They had multiple wives and at any time someone has multiple wives, things are complicated. With their third king, Israel got something else that all the other surrounding nations have. Because over and over and over and over, we find in this epic story of the development of the Hebrew people, that Israel would look around instead of looking up. They would look around and they'd say, we want one of those and we, we want to be like them. And they've got it easier and why can't we have? And if you've got young children or you have a husband like me, you, you have lived this in the supermarket where... They want something, I want this and I want that. And you know, God is a good father and he has children too and we do the same thing. We say, we want, we want to be like them and Israel did that also. And so they got some kings. And then with their third kid, they got what every other na nation got. They got themselves a temple and all the other surrounding nations temple. It wasn't different in the way it looked necessarily. Uh, in fact, it was kind of an organized and built like a traditional pagan ancient temple but the Jewish temple didn't have one thing there was no image of God for whom the temple was built in ancient times you build a temple for a very specific God and in part of that temple there would be like a God vault the vault would be a statue or an image of the God for which the temple was built well the Jewish temple had everything any other temple would have they had a God vault, and we call it the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there was no image of God. Because one of the big Ten Commandments was, you don't create any image of me because I'm Yahweh. I'm the one and only God. And you cannot, I cannot be contained in, or I cannot be described by, or narrowed down to, or reduced to an image. And by the way, I don't live in this house. I'm a mobile God. And if you don't think I am, just ask Pharaoh because I visited him a few hundred years ago, and they still haven't... But anyway, because they wanted a temple, they built a temple, and they had a God vault. But in the God vault, there was no image of Yahweh, because Yahweh said, you'll have no in image of me. And an interesting little piece of history from 63 BC, Pompey annexed the whole of Judea and Galilee in the Roman Empire, and when Pompey was there, he was so fascinated to see that this God of Israel was such a troublemaker. And this God would not join the pantheon of other gods. And that this God, would, who would say, I'm the only God and there are no other gods. This God, who basically despised and looked down even on the Roman gods. So Pompey makes his way into the temple, brushes aside the priests, brushes aside the huge curtain dividing the Holies of Holies from the rest of the temple and goes right into the Holies of Holies looking for the Jewish God. And what does this God even look like, he's thinking. 
And, and when he was there, there was just dishes and a table and some gold and no God. And he was probably disgusted and he just left it all there and he thought, why? Because he was probably thinking, who'd ever heard of a God who doesn't have an image? Now, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, or the Hebrew Bible, a great deal of texts are the rants and ravings and the writings and the warnings and the illustration of prophets. And as you may know, or you should know, every single one of these prophets is addressing a specific historical context. Every single one of these prophets is addressing something going on, primarily with one of the kings. The kings of Israel, or the northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom, but every once in a while, every once in a while, the prophets would look beyond their immediate historical context to a future day when God would do Israel for the nations of the world. A fascinating illustration of this is found in Isaiah. He wrote 600 years before the time of Jesus and he foresaw a mysterious suffering servant whose suffering would benefit the nation and the world. And in Isaiah 53, we find a classic text for Christians, is he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid him on him the iniquity of us all, for he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will be bear their iniquities. God wades into the fray and plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom not of this world. To sand off the rough edges of God's Old Testament behaviour is to miss the mess in which God waded into in order to see the story of redemption played out in the bitter and bloody crucify him, crucify him end. Our Old Testament or Old Covenant is a saga of an ancient people struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce, enemies were real, and death was just a minor infection away. In and in turn, he clung to his nation, careful not to override their freedom with his presence. It's a gritty and powerful ancient history with a divine purpose. The purpose was to announce by God to Abraham and fulfilled 2,200 years later when a Jewish carpenter discovered his fiancée was pregnant. The Apostle Paul may have said it best in his letter uh, to Christians in Galatia. Uh, but when the set time had fully come, the set time was everything that had happened that needed to happen, when the man Abraham had a family that grew into a nation, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law. The law paid, played a role of tutor until the now new lawgiver had come. To redeem those under the law, we might receive an adoption to sonship. The storyline of the Old Testament should cause us all to drop to our knees in gratitude. There's no need to really tidy it up. It's not a spiritual guidebook. It's a story of God preparing the world for a saviour. By the second century, 
the church had incorporated the Hebrew Bible into the Christian worship and they gave it a new name. They called it the Old Covenant, which in Latin later became the Old Testament. And it became the Old Testament. And why old? Because Gentile Christians of that day, as we do now, recognised that God, through Christ, had done something new. And that God had fulfilled his old covenant promises to his nation and to his people and he'd established a brand new covenant with the nation and with all the nations of the world. A covenant that Jesus would say would be instituted and inaugurated in his... But still to this point in history, there's still no Bible. Just the Pentateuch, the five scrolls or the Torah, some Hebrew texts, some stories of the accounts of the life of Jesus and some correspondence uh, by a very famous church planter to his Gentile congregations around the Mediterranean basin. And so we'll sing to that new covenant now, a song, before we go out to morning tea. Don't miss next week, uh, where we have the conclusion of this series about where this text, the Bible, comes from, the Bible for grown-ups.